Thank you very much, everyone, for joining us today on Fiona's R&D Tax Credit Podcast. My name is Raheem Walchi. I'm the Director of R&D Tax Incentives here at Cross Border Solutions. Our mission is to help companies claim R&D tax incentives across the globe. And research shows that only 5% of companies who qualify actually apply. So could you be one of those in the 95%? We'll hope you get that answer in today's podcast and many others. As always, these podcasts are eligible for CPE credits, so feel free to email us if you need any questions answered at the Fiona Show at xbs.ai. Today's topic is what the American Growth Act means for research and development. Today's guest, Erica York, an economist for federal tax policy at the Tax Foundation. She's been featured in the Wall Street Journal. The Washington Post, and many other publications. One of her most recent articles, which we'll be talking about today, is Reviewing the Commitment to American Growth Act, published on taxfoundation.org. Erica, thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to, to be here. So Erica, understand that you're working at the Tax Foundation and your, your specialty is federal tax policy. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you ended up there? Yeah, so I was fortunate in the summer of 2013 to have a Capitol Hill internship, and that was my my first foray into federal policy in general. Um, I didn't specifically get interested in tax policy until I was back home from that internship back at college, and I was at a conference, and I saw a tax map that compared different tax rates across states in, in the United States, and I saw the source for that was the Tax Foundation. So I looked them up on their website. Everything on the website seemed pretty cool to me. And I applied for an internship there and got to intern on the state tax policy team at Tax Foundation. At that time, I was working on my my master's degree in economics. And I completely fell in love with tax policy, which is a hilarious thing to to most people. But I absolutely loved it. And from there, I, I had my connection with Tax Foundation because I had interned from them. And so when they had an opening, it was in federal tax policy. I, I applied for it, got hired, and I've, I've been there ever since. And I especially like working on, on federal tax policy. I, I often like to describe it kind of like an onion. There's always more layers you can peel back and more things you can learn. Absolutely. But hopefully none of them make you cry. Like yeah, <laughs> sometimes. sometimes they do. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. No, I, I, I empathize with you about the you know, sort of nerding out about tax policy when I talk about how much I enjoy tax credits and people kind of look at me a little side eye, but mm-hmm. I talk about R&D and what it's all about and people start to, I think, kind of understand. So Yeah, taxes are cool because they, they really kind of touched on any and every topic from, from R&D to, to factories to agriculture. It, it really spans the spectrum of everything. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. 
Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. Congratulations on, on a great article. I, I thought it was a great read and provided a lot of really good information, not just related to R&D, although there is quite a bit on R&D there, but as well as other um, uh, changes that may be coming along. So let's learn more about you know the American Growth Act. So uh, Congressman Kevin Brady and House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy you know, have proposed this as a sort of an alternative, uh, I believe you mentioned in your article, to Joe Biden's tax plan. And as you say in the article, the Growth Act is designed to address certain expirations in the 2017 um, TCJA Act and to boost domestic investment. So just what changes could we see in the R&D tax credit specifically as a result of the proposal of the American Growth Act? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So under current law, the R&D tax credit is offered as uh, a percentage of how much a company's R&D spending exceeds a certain base level of R&D spending. And there's generally three different formulas that companies have to follow. The proposal that we're talking about here wouldn't really change the structure of those formulas or the structure of the credit, but it would double the credit rate percentages under each formula. So essentially, we're talking about doubling the R&D tax credit. If we want to get into some of the specifics there, uh, currently the regular credit rate for the R&D tax credit is 20%. There's an alternative simplified credit, which credit a little bit easier to access for smaller or newer businesses. And that credit is equal to 14% of qualified research expenditures. And then there's another alternative for companies that just don't have a, a base of research expenditures. And that credit is currently a 6% credit. So the proposal would double those to be 40%, 28%, and 14% credits. So a pretty significant increase in, in the size and the benefits of the credit compared to what companies can access now. Absolutely. I found it interesting that the uh, the 6% is getting, quote, unquote, doubled to 14% and then learning about the clerical or the rounding error, essentially, that kept it at 6 instead of the 7% originally. Yeah, that's a funny little quirk that, that it's at 6% instead of what it was intended to be, which is 7%. So they're doubling it by, by what they intended it to be rather than what it really is under current law. No, I think that's great. You know, they're, they're trying to, to do the best they can. And, you know, especially in the environment we're in today, you know, even that one extra or two extra percentage points, you know, really can, can make a difference. Yeah. So also, in addition to the doubling of the credit, there's also some impacts uh, related to the, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act from 2017 in regards to the amortization. Can you talk a little bit about that briefly? Yeah. So within the next two years, there's a scheduled tax change that will create a headwind to additional R&D investment. And that is that starting in 2022, firms that invest in R&D will have to amortize those costs over five years instead of getting to immediately deduct those costs like they do under current law and like they have been able to do since 1954. This will essentially increase the cost of making R&D investments because instead of getting an immediate deduction, companies have to wait to take that deduction over time. And because of things like inflation and the time value of money, in real terms, that reduces the ability of companies to recoup what they spend on R&D. 
And so this bill would essentially cancel that change that's that's going to take place in 2022 and instead just allow companies to keep deducting those R&D expenses. Absolutely right. Kind of, kind of, you know, maybe a bad analogy, but kind of the opposite of compound interest. You know, with compound interest, you leave it, it grows, it grows. Here, as you spread the time out in which the benefit comes back to the company, it actually has lesser and lesser value, right? And so, I think to your point, that's a really, really helpful change. You know, in terms of removing that expiration and keeping the amortization and or the you know being able to expense the credit in the current year would be much more beneficial to those types of companies that are are looking to make those types of investments. Yeah, and that's actually a really good analogy. Sometimes I like to explain the the difference between getting the immediate deduction versus having to wait as saying, you know, if I asked to borrow $100 from you this year and told you in five years, I'll give you the $100 back, most people would say, well, that's not fair. I should be compensated for waiting. And it's kind of the same thing here. If a company spends $100 on R&D and has to wait five years to fully get to deduct that on on their tax return that that same principle is at play they're losing value and they should be compensated for waiting absolutely and then the last piece that i believe you know was touched on in your article related to r&d specifically was certain incentives related to certain industries can you touch on that a little bit yeah so so this bill has some changes that are targeted specifically to medical and pharmaceutical companies I think a big impetus for that is is the ongoing pandemic and the wish to incentivize more innovation in, in that industry within the United States. So as far as changes specifically for those industries in the R&D tax credit, there are two primary changes there. One is that pre-revenue companies, so companies that, that don't have revenues yet, would be able to receive their R&D tax credit as a refund. So currently, if you don't have income to offset, you can't use your tax credit. You have to wait and carry it uh, forward over time. And then we're kind of back to that issue of losing value over time, right? So this proposal would allow those certain pre-revenue companies to just receive that that R&D tax credit as a refund. And then another change is that qualified research expenditures that are associated specifically with infectious disease research would receive a bonus R&D tax credit on top of their regular tax credit. And that bonus tax credit would be worth 14% of those qualified research expenditures. There's definitely a lot to unpack in this new proposal that seems to really amalgamate and and kind of compile or overlap a lot of the the different proposals that had been um, submitted earlier in the year. This seems to really kind of take all of those and put it all together with a nice bow on. Yeah, it does. There's a, a lot going on in, in this package, and it, it would do a lot to to improve investment incentives. So I know we, we've kind of talked high level about the doubling of the credit, and I know that we've talked a little bit about you know some of these specialty industry benefits and the amortization. There's also some aspects related to tax liabilities and developing intellectual property abroad and you know bringing that back to the U.S., Can you touch on what the the proposal contains about that and why that's important? Yeah. So in general, uh, under the proposal, if a company had developed IP abroad under, like, say, a foreign subsidiary and they wanted to bring that back to the U.S. parent company, this proposal would indicate that um, bringing it back to the U.S. parent company wouldn't trigger an immediate tax liability. But going forward, if the company then decided to sell the IP, the tax would be owed at that time. This essentially just removes a hurdle to bringing back IP. 
in general, the tax code interactions with international transactions can be a really big headache. And so this change would kind of just avoid some of those headaches, at least until the IP would be sold in in the future. In terms of those industry-specific benefits that you, you mentioned, one of them is the temporary advanced manufacturing credit. Can you talk about what this does specifically and what values, you know, in terms of the the percentages it would offer to companies that participate? Yeah. So the advanced manufacturing credit would be a temporary provision to incentivize new investments in machinery that would be used to manufacture medicine and things like medical devices in the United States. So the credit would be worth certain percentages of the cost of that new investment. From now until 2027, the credit would be worth 30% of investment costs. That would fall to 20% in 2028. It'd fall to 10% in 2029. And then by 2030, it would expire entirely. So what that would look like would be that if a business spent $1,000 on a new machine for a U.S. factory that was making some kind of medical device, they would receive a 30% credit or $300 to offset their tax liability. So really, this is a, a pretty significant bonus for, for investments that, that would qualify for this credit. And then we talked a little bit about this, but you know, we touched high level, but how else are these medical supply or ingredient, drug ingredients or pharmaceutical companies benefiting from some of the proposals within the Growth Act, You know, whether it's pre-revenue or, or infectious disease related? Yeah, so another really big tax credit that would be targeted toward pharmaceutical companies or medical supply companies is the domestic medical and drug manufacturing credit. And that would essentially reduce the corporate tax rate in half for these companies on their eligible profits. It would do that by offering a tax credit of 10.5% against the 21% corporate income tax rate. And that would be offered on net income that's derived from the sale of active pharmaceutical ingredients and medical countermeasures. Another really big benefit that this proposal would target specifically towards those specific industries that are associated with medical supplies and and pharmaceuticals and reduce the tax burden on the income derived from that sort of activity. And then in terms of, you mentioned earlier, the 14% bonus R&D credit on top of the regular One of the other aspects that at least I found interesting and would love to get your thoughts on is pre-revenue companies would actually get a refund of the R&D tax credit, which, you know, right now you see the payroll tax offset, uh, you know, that being doubled from 250,000 to 500,000. But, you know, there's always been this talk about companies that were an AMT. So we had to change that provision so small businesses could take advantage. And now you're starting to see, you know, pre-revenue companies, all of a sudden now R&D can be taken as, as a refund. Can you Can you give some of your thoughts about that change and and why that might be significant? Yeah, so one of the general detriments in the tax code for startups or small businesses is that when a business makes a profit, it's immediately subject to tax liability in the same year that the profits earn. But if a business turns a loss, it's not always entitled to an immediate tax benefit. We see things like NOLs or unused credits. Those have to be carried forward and can lose their value. And so expansions like allowing the R&D tax credit to offset not just income tax liability, but payroll tax liability is one way that we can kind of remedy 
that issue. The proposal goes even further than expanding the payroll tax offset by allowing certain industries, so the pre-revenue companies that would be allowed to receive a refund of their R&D tax credit would be medical supply and pharmaceutical companies that are specified in the bill. So the change allowing pre-revenue companies to receive a refund of their R&D tax credit brings more symmetry to the tax system by letting them immediately see a benefit, even if they have a loss, like they would immediately see a tax burden if, if they had profits. And for me, I thought that was very interesting because, you know, having worked in this space for a while and, and helping companies, you know, calculate these benefits and claim the benefits, that's always one of the big limitations is, you know, what in the past it was A&T and now, you know, with these startups, it's, okay, I've, I've hit my payroll tax side, but, you know, what else can I do with these credits? And so at least for these limited industries that they might be given, given the current environment that we're in, it's interesting to at least see that opportunity be provided. Yeah, it is. And more generally, we, we've seen some discussions of things like being able to cash out these different tax attributes as part of potential relief for the ongoing economic recovery. And it's interesting to see it come up here too, to incentivize more R&D expenditures. In your article, one of the other things that you happened to mention was that the definition of qualifying research isn't easy to, to parse through. Can you tell us what you mean by that a little bit and, and why that is a problem? Yeah, to meet the definition of qualified research, an expenditure has to meet a four-part test. First, it has to qualify for the definition that you find under Section 174 of the tax code, which deals with how the costs of R&D are recognized for tax purposes. And that definition essentially means that the costs have to be experimental in nature and also related to the business. But then the next three tests that the definition requires further narrow that first definition to expenses that meet things like a technological requirement related to certain processes and then limitations that the improvements can't just be for things like style. A lot of research shows that this complexity is wasteful in the sense that it necessitates significant legal and administrative expenditures on, on the part of the company and then also on the part of tax collectors to enforce these rules. And then it provides an advantage to larger companies that are better suited to deal with the legal barriers. Uh, for instance, there's research from the Mercatus Center that shows that in 2011, the largest 0.13% of firms filed 14% of the claims for the R&D tax credit and received 82% of the total dollar value. The complexity really acts as a barrier for smaller firms that just don't have the resources to, to tackle all of the, the qualifications and the requirements of the credit, meaning that, that the larger firms benefit the most from the credit, even though if we could get the credit to benefit smaller firms, that would have a really great economic benefit. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing 
reporting software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. I absolutely agree with you. You know, I think there's there's two comments that I would make here that are, are, I think, in alignment with what you're saying. So in my experience, one of the things that we've seen is, especially in states that have a credit where they require an application or there's only a specific pool of funds, you'll see that $5 million pool of funds get, you know, zapped up by three large companies. And then there's pennies left, you know, for some of these smaller firms that really need the dollars to, to invest back in their firms. And so I, I think I agree with you there that it makes it a lot harder for the small businesses who really need this type of assistance and aren't getting any other types of government benefits to claim this type of incentive. And then second, to your point about the difficulty in navigating as well as the, the legal and administrative expenses, right? You think about audit costs and any litigation associated with it and things like that. One of the things that's, you know, for our company, we work with a lot of international incentives as well. And so it's interesting to see how some of the other countries approach R&D and, and some of them even have sort of an, an opposite approach where they specifically list things that are excluded. And essentially the proposal is then that anything else that's not on that list, you can claim a credit for it, right? And so they try to make it easy and simple to navigate, also easy to enforce, which hopefully then minimizes costs. So I think I agree with the points that you were making there about the definition being difficult to, to navigate, even being someone who, who does it personally on this. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And it's interesting to hear hear your experience in other countries too. I'm sure that we could learn a lot from, from the way other countries approach R&D. Hopefully we're trying to learn from others. <laughs> so. <laughs> The next step I wanted to, to, to talk about in the article, like I said, there's there's lots to unpack there. We talk about the tax code's passive activity loss rules and how those also are causing a problem. The bill addresses this for some of these medical companies, you know, given the environment that we're in. Can you talk a little bit about how this proposal does that? Yeah, so this can be a kind of complicated area of the tax code. But in general, the tax code contains rules that prevent the use of tax shelters that people might use to generate a significant loss in in one area and use that loss to offset their income in another area. The way that the tax code does this is by distinguishing between passive activities or businesses in which the taxpayer doesn't have material participation or doesn't have involvement in the day-to-day activities of the business versus a non-passive or an active business which would be something that the taxpayer works at on a regular and continuous and substantial basis. And so generally, taxpayers are limited in their ability to deduct passive losses from non-passive income through those passive activity loss rules. And that intends to prevent taxpayers from just using passive losses as a sort of tax shelter for their real or their active income. But then on the other hand, when we're thinking of small businesses and entrepreneurs, they often have to rely on outside investors to provide the financial capital for their businesses. And 
these entrepreneurial activities can be really risky. But under the current tax code, as, as we kind of mentioned earlier, you don't always get an immediate tax benefit for a loss while you do see an immediate tax burden when you uh, make your profit. And so the tax code already has some provisions that help incentivize taxpayers to invest in these more risky small business ventures. And the proposal that we're talking about here, the Commitment to American Growth Act, would build on that in an effort to encourage more investment specifically in medical research. So the proposal would relax some of the passive loss rules for qualified medical research activity of taxpayers when it's carried on by a specified medical research small business, which is a mouthful. But to to qualify for that, um, more than 80% of the business's expenditures on qualified research would have to be related to medical research activities. And then to qualify as the small business part, the business would have to have less than $1 million in gross receipts. So for that that very narrow definition of business, uh, those passive loss rules would be loosened to try to help encourage some investment. A lot of definitions in that one. <laughs> <laughs> like you said, a mouthful for sure. Mm-hmm. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross-Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai slash rd. That's xbs.ai slash rd. One of the questions that I have for you is, is kind of a little bit more general, but and it's kind of taking a, a, a higher level view of this. So why is a bill like this, the American Growth Act, right? You know, maybe, maybe the name tells us a little bit, of course, but why is a bill like this important, especially at a time like this right now? I think for a couple of reasons. So one, um, I think just the number of proposals on this issue signify that if, if we stick with the status quo here, we're going to be falling behind. And that's partly due to the number of tax increases on research and development, and then more broadly on investment in general that are baked into the tax code over the next few years. A lot of those changes were were included in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 as a way to offset some of the costs on the business side, but they're going to come with negative economic effects by increasing the costs of, of making investments in the United States. So that's that's one issue. I think a second issue for, for why this is so important right now is that we're right at the beginning of an economic recovery. And one of the best ways to get back on track and to, to help people get back on their feet is by uh, doing anything we can to incentivize investment in productivity, enhancing machinery and equipment and factories and, and the whole gamut. And so 
things like this that help improve incentives for investment aren't just good in the long term in terms of our competitiveness and in terms of our economic growth and in the long run, but they're also good in the short run as we're, we're trying to um, get out of this recession and, and make headway in terms of economic growth. I, I agree with you. And, and, you know, and speaking of the competitiveness of, of the U S and, you know, and, and the economy as a whole, you know, I'm sure you, you read this, but you know, the information technology innovation foundation, the ITIF recently released a report, um, that you know noted that the U.S. is ranked 24th out of 34 OECD countries when it comes to R&D tax um, credits and investments. Um, as we talked about a little bit earlier, you know, there's a few proposals on the table that could impact R&D in some way, shape, or form, and then there's overlaps. For example, the the bill Congresswoman Walorski's bill to double motion to repeal the five-year amortization, which we talked about. Um, and those, you know, are some commonalities with the American Growth Act. What does that tell us a little bit about amortization and the R&D tax credit in the U.S. overall? And this is more of kind of an opinion question and your thoughts, but you know, what does this kind of tell us when we're seeing AI, some of these things repeated? Yeah, I think it's, again, just a sign that if we stick with things the way they are now, we're moving in the wrong direction and we're falling behind. We've seen federal R&D spending decline over the past five decades. We've seen private sector investment in R&D offset some of that decline. For example, it's, it's increased somewhat over, over the same time period. But since about the 2000s, it's remained kind of flat. And so I think there are a number of policy changes that, that we should think about to help increase R&D spending, not just uh, directly increase federal R&D spending, but also make these improvements in the tax code that will help private investment in R&D. Canceling R&D amortization is one important tax policy change to encourage investment. Um, increasing the R&D tax credit in its current structure is, is also another way that that could be done. But I think just reforms to make the credit more easily accessible need to be considered too. And then broader expensing provisions as well that, that aren't just for R&D, but for capital investment in general can be helpful in this arena as well. Absolutely. You know, when it comes to the amortization piece, I, the way I like to put it is, you know, at the time they were making this sunset happen in 2022 so that they, you know, for budgetary reasons to make it, it fit within those constraints. And I said, you know, sometimes it's, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul, right? You're, you're trying to make this pass and to make this part of a larger act, but you know, the sunsetting of these types of things can really cause some long-term effects. Well, Erica, this has been a very enlightening conversation. Thank you so much for, for your input and for helping us to unpack the American Growth Act and looking forward to hopefully having you again next time. Yeah, thanks so much. It's been fun. Well, everyone, Erica York is with the Tax Foundation and you can find her article on the American Growth Act at taxfoundation.org. Once again, I'm Raheem Walji, the Director of R&D Incentives here at Cross Border Solutions. Thank you very much. And a shout out to Matthew DeMello for engineering this podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple or Spotify. That's Fiona's R&D Tax Credit Podcast. And we'll fill you in on all the knowledge you need about R&D tax credits in every episode.